Welcome to 2023 and episode 37 of Political OD. Do we talk about Harry? Well, everybody else is talking about Harry. In fact, Harry is taking over the British media, it would seem. He doesn't want any attention brought to him, but he is giving the impression that he's relishing it. He, whether he, whether he's badly advised or, or whatever, it's entertaining to watch. I suppose that's the only thing that you would say. I think it's very sad to watch. The thing I've observed is that, that there's a deeply disturbed young man and he really does need to get some help. I'm not sure that the psychobabble of, of Californian therapists are going to be of much uh, benefit to him. Uh, yeah, he needs some proper friends to put a, an arm around him and sort of give him some more, uh, you know, wiser counsel because you're right, the psychobabble, whether he's, you know, the, whether those people have his interests at heart, really, they certainly don't have any, uh, have the interests of the royal family at heart. It's just, a, it's, a, it's a sad, uh, it's a sad thing to see. And I think you'll probably see an older man or a more reflective man bitterly regretting it at some point. The, the maddest bit for me is this notion of reconciliation while he burns every bridge to the royal family. You burn your bridge and ask someone to come to you. Are they going to jump into the abyss? You know, I, I think it's it's very very sad. Well, I I wouldn't claim to be a relationship counselor, but I <laughs> imagine that what they would recommend is that you create a little space to allow that reconciliation to take place, and just the barrage of of headlines and stories at the moment. It's just hard to see how that uh, space could ever be created. Hopefully, things calm down and. His book, um, you know, whether it ends up in remainder piles or whatever happens to it. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I, th- I think I think it'll sell well because people are purely interested in, in the lives of others. Um, and and the the, be- the bigger the collapse, the more interested we seem to become. Yeah, well, that's true. Maybe you could ask Megan how he's, how she's getting on with reconciling with her father. That might help. <laughs> that doesn't. That seems to be a well. It's not even a work in progress, is it? <laughs> Back to back to more familiar territory. Um, uh, we've had uh, you know New Year's same old uh, protocol, which seems to be continuing its its path. Announcement that some great breakthrough, which I think we suggested at the end of last year, there'd be an announcement of great breakthroughs that, when you actually look at them, don't amount to very much. This is the EU basically accepting that there are technical means of monitoring trade, but of course, that was in initially described as magical thinking, if I remember rightly, that there were technical solutions to monitoring trade. And of course, if you can technically monitor trade between GB and NI, why can't you technically monitor trade between NI and the Republic of Ireland? One of the things that happened just before Christmas was uh, that the EU put uh, veterinary medicines on a three-year grace period. That doesn't suggest they imagine there's going to be any great movement on the protocol uh, anytime soon. Well, we had another press statement essentially from um, Maros Sevkovic and, and um, Cleverly, the uh, British Foreign Secretary. And I mean, it didn't really amount to very much. It's been described in some quarters as a breakthrough. And I think that the government's even trying to encourage that idea, it would seem, because the Stormont parties are, are due to meet cleverly uh, as right. part of talks in an attempt to, to restore Stormont that uh, Mr. Heaton Harris is, is chairing. But the breakthrough, uh, as far as I was concerned, it didn't really seem to amount to very much. It's to do with 
data sharing. It's you know finally the the, the EU, uh, as they claim they they've had no access to data on goods moving between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Whether they should have access to that data in the first place is a bit of a moot point, and it doesn't seem to be any kind of a reciprocal agreement that that, that Britain can can look at EU data. But it, it's very much a technical issue. And as we've discussed on many occasions before, the gravest problems with the protocol are constitutional. This isn't one of those. It just it, it's more you know nego- negotiating on how the protocol might work a little more smoothly and um, how goods you know yes technical solutions tech electronic borders that that kind of thing that this is not going to address the constitutional issues that uh, unionists have with the protocol. The way the media addresses small changes uh, was exemplified by uh, people poring over uh, Leo Varadkar's statement early last week, uh, where he was saying that the protocol was a little too strict, which suggested that the Irish government might be a bit more conciliatory in terms of uh, understanding the protocol wasn't quite the right thing to have done. Uh, But by Wednesday, his spokesman were saying, oh, no, he didn't mean anything like that. He just meant that it was important to deal with flexibility, but nothing had changed. So there you had sort of on the one hand, everything's changed. And then within a couple of days, nothing has changed. I think nobody's got any detail on how this is going to work. Yes. And I mean, the headline was that they'd agreed to share this data, but then... They haven't? um, Yeah. And now they're to go away and see how this works. You would have thought that if you'd reached an agreement to share the data that you would have know that it would work you would fairly quickly come to um some sort of technical arrangement that would that would uh, put that in place i don't uh, really understand why this is so complicated or why it's regarded as such a breakthrough because it seems like the sort of thing that could have been happening at the start of last year if there'd really been a will to make things work a little more smoothly but i don't believe that the protocol was ever about uh, making things work smoothly, as I'm sure you don't either, David. Yeah, I just recall that when the whole subject of trade between GB and NI was first like raised as a as a as a technical issue, the, the point was there is no trade data of GB NI because it's an internal market. I mean, that's the point. Nobody really knows well, how much trade goes on. I mean, this is the thing, and it actually exemplifies the fact that the protocol has changed the arrangements between Great Britain and Northern Ireland because, you know, you look at the trading support arrangements and this kind of thing. So companies in Britain that have been sending goods to Northern Ireland have been going through these added procedures that weren't there previously. They've also been filling out customs declarations because we've, you know, you, you receive these customs declarations very often now on goods that you get from Great Britain. I bought a cycling jersey the other week from Wiggle, which is a wiggle.co.uk, which is a British company. It came with a customs declaration. So a lot of this stuff actually exemplifies how deeply the protocol is already embedded in our trading uh, systems and how much it has changed the relationship between Great Britain and and Northern Ireland economically. The fact that we're now talking about how we make this a kind of permanent facet of our lives and extend it to, you know, potentially, I suppose, to other forms of goods that have already got the the, the grace periods in, in place. I don't 
really see how that can be sold as progress to unionists. And I mean, if Mr. Cleverly is going to go and persuade, for instance, the DUP, Ulster Unionists and the TUV as well, that this is something that is actually positive for Northern Ireland, he's going to have to get his story straight and explain how this is going to play out in the months to come, because there was no sign yesterday that we were anywhere close to dealing with four issues that I see, which is trade coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland freely, regulations, getting making sure that we can avail of British regulations here, the tax situation, making sure that the UK government is completely in charge of our tax laws and can implement whatever it likes here uh, in line with the rest of the UK and the jurisdiction of, of the European Court of Justice, which is you know, another important matter that the EU has, has yet shown no sign that it, it will be flexible about. No, and of course, if, if the data is to be realistic, it means all those grace periods will ultimately end up in uh, having to have some paperwork attached. And estimate at the moment is only about 20% of goods have any paperwork and, and the regulatory enforcement that the protocol might envisage. That's at a cost of a you know, I, I remember it's being said that it would cost 200 million to basically put the support in place, but I've recently seen the number 320 or 350 million uh, as a cost of managing the protocol. You know, that is a cost that is currently being absorbed by government. If that's only 20% of current trade, that's going to be a massive cost to the Northern Ireland economy going forward if, yep. the, if the protocol is allowed to take its proper course. Yes, because the important point on that is that that help is coming to an end. The haulage industry has been briefed that this, uh, the haulage industry is kind of at the sharp end of this and is dealing with this paperwork, that this uh, help is, is due to come to an end, I think, next year. So it's going to be a huge imposition on the Northern Ireland economy, even if you are talking about the, you know, take, taking off the rough edges with technology or whatever, because however you manage that, it means either people sitting at computers and putting extra data in that they weren't otherwise obliged to do. It means perhaps barcodes going on, on goods. And none of this sounds like a big deal if you just put it like that. But as soon as you sort of blow it up into this happens to every good, it happens to every shipment, then you're talking about thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds being added um, to the costs that companies have to have to absorb. And that is just unreasonable. One of the things, uh, we, we mentioned Leo Vrager there, I think the Irish position is, is quite interesting. Obviously, uh, it was very forceful in supporting the EU in punishing Britain. Uh, it seemed to suit Vrager and Coveney at the time to be uber nationalists and perhaps they thought they could swing some Sinn Féin votes towards Fine Gael. but it also kind of covers up a very uncomfortable relationship between Ireland and the EU which I think was picked up in the uh, newsletters um, editorial this morning where uh, the EU's tech regulations are actually something that really don't suit the Republic of Ireland any more than the EU's attitude towards corporation tax. There seems to be increasing friction, if you like. Perhaps the arguments over Brexit keeps the EU occupied on other things that uh, it's not pursuing Ireland so hard. The, the Apple corporation tax argument rolls on slowly but surely. 
Uh, and now the uh, data protection uh, regulations are beginning to bite at the heels of the Irish tech boom, if you like, the, the ability for Ireland to have attracted so many tech investors over the past 20 years? There's sort of two separate but connected issues there. The first being that the EU is an extraordinarily overbearing regulator. And this is something that it's beginning to attack the, the tech industry, if you want to say, if, if you want to use a term as, as robust as that, with requiring standardized equipment, looking at public data requirements. And so this is clashing directly with the Irish state's desire to have a kind of light touch in that area because it wants to attract these companies. And we've talked before, of course, um, David, about the way that the Celtic Tiger or the Republic of Ireland's economy has been based on, on this idea of inward investment. Tax receipts are moving through the economy, but it doesn't bring a great deal of benefit um, to people in the Republic of Ireland. But whatever you, however you analyse that, it's become extraordinarily important Republic of Ireland to have low tax rates and to have a light touch in terms of regulation. And although the Republic likes to portray itself as this kind of ideal EU citizen, as it were, as this member state that's uh, playing by the rules and is the most enthusiastic member of the EU, its economic model is at directly at odds with what the EU is trying to do. It's already facing higher corporation tax rates, and that's been forced upon it, uh, partly by what's through, through the OECD, I believe, but the EU have brought that pressure to bear. And now there's this issue around regulation and data and everything else. And, and I mean, you can, have, you can have different arguments and ideas about tech companies and their morality and everything else, but I, I think we can agree that generally... Um, overbearing regulation is not going to bring benefits to your economy. I think it was an Irish Times article which basically said that the Irish government rather uh, hoped that the EU would, that there was enough grey that they would fudge forever and leave it lying in the legal processes of Europe, which I suppose is where the protocol uh, might be heading as well, that it simply is a constant round of legal and faux uh, conflict uh, between parties, but actually nothing ever really much changes. Uh, I think it's also worth in that context. It's worth remembering that uh, you know the the uh, protocol was set up on the risk to the single market, but of course um, one of the biggest risks to our food on the table was of course the uh, horse meats in Tesco lasagna, which came out of an Irish processing plant. Well, that's right, and it shows really the absurdity of some of the arguments around um, risk that we've heard over the last few years, the risk of uh, olive oil from the olive groves of um, England coming into the EU via Northern Ireland, all this kind of nonsense, ready meals crossing the border. You know, the thing is that serious companies, you know, big companies, if they're selling goods into the EU, they're going to be meeting their regulations. They're going to be hoping to sell the goods on in the EU market. So the risk of defective goods, of goods that don't meet those regulations uh, coming in, certainly via Northern Ireland, is absolutely minimal because it's just not compatible with the way that companies practice their no. trade. It, it, there's almost no 
methods by which they could do that, even if they wanted to, which is extraordinarily unlikely anyway. I always think it's interesting that you know the protocol is demanding a level of regulation and control that the Irish Republic itself would balk at uh, in many ways. Uh, it, it really is uh, you wanting a far greater imposition on the Northern Ireland economy uh, and indeed on, on the UK uh, internal market than the Irish would ever tolerate themselves. Yeah, I, I think it's that's not by accident because we're no. competitors in the end of the day. At the um, end of the day. The UK are competitor, uh, is a competitor with the Republic of Ireland. And actually Northern Ireland is a, a competitor with the Republic of Ireland. Indeed. We pointed out at the time that Brexit offered substantial potential benefits in, in terms of that. For instance, you know, the, the Northern Ireland replacing food going into Great Britain and that kind yeah. of thing. But none of that has really been discussed or or explored because we've run into the protocol, we've run into issues with Brexit being implemented and with people, you know, obstructing what has been decided by the British people. Let's let, let's move back to the UK. I think in in the UK context, regulation doesn't seem to be something that Rishi Sunak's government is is uh, that bothered about. Uh, I picked up and and ignored because I'm not that interested. That that one of the next areas to be regulated is the world of football. Um, I can't imagine uh, why uh, football should be in any way regulated. It is a private commercial activity, and it really isn't for the government to get involved in that respect unless there's criminality or fraud involved or or something of, of that nature. And I think that's already covered by laws. But I think it also tends to this idea that the Sunak government doesn't really have much of a direction despite the efforts uh, by Rishi Sunak uh, just again this past week to try and set up some sense of where uh, the government m- might be going in the next uh, two years. And that two years, of course, being very important because there has to be an election at the end of 2024, beginning of 2025. And both he and Starmer have been trying to set out their new pathways, but neither really have a, a big idea. And Starmer still seems to be staying slightly ahead in the polls, the Sunak government just can't seem to find its purpose. You know you're into an election campaign when you hear Starmer saying things like, uh, you know, Labour aren't the party of of tax and spend, um, <laughs> which he was trying to imply the other day. In terms of the kind of deregulatory um, credentials of the Sunak government. I mean, one of the few kind of deregulatory projects that did seem to be part of Sunak's uh, leadership bid was this idea that you would have a bonfire of EU regulations, but that's run into problems almost immediately. There's you know talk of delays, talk of it perhaps not happening, and of and of course you know in a sense in Northern Ireland, but the way things are at the moment, we would have a degree of anxiety about that anyway because it has the capacity to make Great Britain diverge further from Northern Ireland in, in the short term if the if the protocol remains um, in place. There is a kind of a dearth of ideas there. We were told to expect this great speech from Rishi Sunak which was going to you know give the vision thing. That, you know, there was content, there was discussion about the NHS, there was a little bit of this and that. The main kind of headlines, the main thing that came out of it was that he wanted there to be more maths in schools, um, which, while it is a laudable enough aim, it hardly substitutes for 
a vision for how the country should be run or where the no. country should be heading. It was kind of like a chief, chief executive's uh, letter at the start of the year where you're sort of saying, these are our five priorities for the year, um, but not a chairman's letter, which states <sighs> the actual sense of what the business is out to achieve. Um, it was all very managerial, if you like, rather than in any way visionary or purposeful. It's a bit like, uh, yeah, he, he's got that uh, persona, hasn't he? And mm. I heard uh, indeed when the um, hustings came to Northern Ireland, I've heard one or two comments of that type of people who were who were there that day saying that he had that kind of managerial style that he was a bit, that was a bit like watching um, somebody give a speech at a conference. PowerPoint presentation. Uh, yeah, PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, indeed. Uh, PowerPoint would probably fit his, his kind of ethos quite nicely. The, one of the uh, trigger points in England, I think, for the coming year is, of course, the local elections. Um, May did poorly uh, in hers. So you know, they've lost, if you like, the, the dodgy seats back in 20, 2019. These are, the, these are mostly Shire counties. So it, they're not... They're not the metropolitan areas, so Labour will have a bit more effort. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the Lib Dems cut into the Conservative vote, um, but certainly nothing that Sunak's saying would really have people rush out to the polls, and I suspect that it'll be more about how many voters can you actually get out to vote at all in the local government elections that will work out who gets the most seats or the... How many people lose least? Many of those areas, traditionally Tory areas as well, places where there are you know, party organisations and there's a lot of talk about dissent um, within that kind of grassroots Tory organisation. The only thing is, you know, that, that, that there are party organisations and then there are voters and those two sets of people aren't always in no. tune, um, whether... You know, Sunak is he, he resonates more with your average Tory voter rather than your kind of average Tory party member but remains to be seen. But I mean, it doesn't look at the moment like anything to get excited about for Conservative voters. And you would imagine that they'll have some losses and some problems. And it's just a matter of keeping the scale of that to a manageable level and a, and a level that he can sort of turn around and say that this hasn't been an absolute disaster and that there's some scope for improvement. Starmer is equally managerial in his uh, presentation. So you're not looking at a clash of, of great personalities, are we? All of a sudden, this isn't, um, you know, this isn't Corbyn against Johnson. No. The, the return of politics, the return of divisions and high uh, tempers and, and everything else. Although... Those kind of divisions are still still there in, in political society and, and the, the, the temperature of the rhetoric does get very high. We've seen a return to this kind of more consensus-seeking uh, style where there's very little to choose between some of the, the, the key politicians. And, and you do wonder as well whether the policies are as far apart as, uh, as they should be. Well, indeed. Uh, and then, of course, in, in Northern Ireland, um, we will have an election this year because the local elections are coming up uh, May time, I think. I, there might be some question about the date relative to, or has the date changed already because of the coronation? So that, I'm, I'm that, not 100% sure, I have to say, David. Yeah, uh, because they didn't want, obviously, 
the vote, although it's a Thursday vote, the coronations on the Saturday, so they couldn't kind of vote through the weekend in the way that our votes never start immediately and would never be finished by by the day of the coronation. So uh, I think they've been delayed ever so slightly. Uh, I suppose the, the question we would ask is, will there be an assembly election on the same day, given the much postponed not uh, the minute past uh, midnight election is still due sometime in 2023, perhaps? Yes, I think there's a legal requirement, actually, to look at it again this month or something. Yeah, but um, the way that this has been managed and the fact that there seems to be a provision for this legislation to, to kind of go on indefinitely. I mean, I don't foresee that we will see a, an assembly election before the local elections. I think that it's a very realistic possibility that we will have an assembly election. I, I struggle to see what could happen in the interim that would get Stormont back up and running this iteration of Stormont. So yeah. I think that we probably will be going to the polls um, to vote in, in two elections that day. But I think there might be some sense amongst the powers that be that perhaps if they have the elections on the same day, the Ulster Unionists might do slightly better uh, because they have a stronger showing at a local government level. They do have some more long-standing local councillors uh, who certainly pull a personal vote, tending to be in the rural areas, because I think Belfast is now broadly lost. But I think we saw when the European elections were held on the same day as the council elections, uh, you know, the Ulster Unionists did okay. Uh, I wouldn't say brilliantly, but they did okay at council level relative to how they absolutely bombed in the European election. They're, the electorate in Northern Ireland seems perfectly capable of distinguishing between the type of person or the, the purpose of different candidates in different elections. So I don't think the Ulster Unionists will particularly benefit from having an, elect, an assembly election on the same day as a local government election, uh, particularly when even at local government level, it seems to be uh, just as disorganised in its election plans as uh, it is in everything else. I think people are equipped to separate the political issues that they're voting on at an assembly election, for instance, and the personalities who they're voting for in the local government election. The issue that, that you would point out with the elections and, and the fact that the DUP are under tremendous pressure, will be under tremendous pressure, presumably from the government, to reverse their decision and, and to get the executive back up and running. At the same time, you're saying there's going to be one, potentially two elections this year, and we're inviting you to go into those polls having you know, gone back on your absolute rock-solid commitment that you're not going to go back into government without seeing a resolution to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that the two governments are not fundamentally going to alter the protocol. You know, there, there may be a bit of um, uh, you know, media hype around what they're doing. But as we, we talked about at the start of this podcast, breakthroughs are more uh, in terms of, of their ability to say something at all, rather than the fact that it's just, it's just more of the same, really, but with a different emphasis. So the government is relying essentially on the idea that the DUP is going to start losing support because it hasn't revived the executive, that people are going to be more exercised 
about getting the executive back up and running than they're going to be about the protocol and hence they're going to either switch to the Ulster Unionists as you say and maybe they're trying to give them a, a boost or alliance or, or whatever and I just don't foresee that that will happen. Yeah. I, I think as we said before you know it, it's all very well saying we need an executive back, back to make these decisions. The executive has had 25 years uh, uh, to make decisions and they've singularly failed uh, to address any of the big issues in Northern Ireland. Um, so the idea that they would suddenly come back and fix things uh, is delusional. My perspective has always been that um, devolution is probably a necessary evil by now. It's not going to go away. It's embedded in a way that is so permanent that it's difficult to see how you would get rid of it. We've got devolution in Scotland and Wales as well, and Northern Ireland is part of that um, set up now. And all of those parliaments and, and, and governments, to, to an extent, they're popular in that people probably wouldn't vote to get rid of them in those in those jurisdictions. Um, but every unionist should be a reluctant devolutionist because it's actually done a lot of damage to our place within the UK Um over the years and it's achieved since certainly since 1998 it's achieved very little whenever it has been operating and large parts of that time it's not been operating. I think even if you leave aside the damage to to the union or the, let's put that aside it simply hasn't delivered good government I mean no. that, that, that's that's the fundamental I mean devolution hasn't worked any and, more and than it's, worked. it's meant sorry David it's meant that we've been left behind yeah. Where, where the rest of the UK is pressed ahead with public sector reform, with health reform, a lot of work going into education over the past 10 years, even though the, you know, the Conservative government hasn't been an unqualified success, but it's pushed changes in, in education that are generally seen to be um, quite successful. Mm-hmm. But we've missed out on all of that. But again, again, if we look at Scotland, I mean, I, I saw one SNP uh, a, a parliamentarian saying the other day that they'd had 16 years of successful government. I was wondering <laughs> you know, where, where he was living because Scotland, uh, you know, that if you look at health, policing, education, it's falling God down damn. every, yeah, it, it's just falling down every single area. And, and the only thing that the SNP government has managed to do is create a more divisive political atmosphere in Scotland. And that seems to be what nationalism does. It's simply exists to divide and hopefully at some point uh, encourage enough people to believe that the fault is with central government uh, and uh, that the salvation is somehow to go it alone or in the case of Irish nationalism uh, to go into another state that they somehow win. Um, I'm not quite sure that that pain is worth it. And nationalism obviously exploits that sense, but it's inbuilt into the devolved systems as well, where you always have somebody to blame. You don't have the incentive to take responsibility. You can always say that it's central government's fault. Even the sort of, even even the, the devolved versions of the government parties or the, or, the, or the national parties that fight for government have a tendency to do that and take on board that kind of dynamic as well. Um, you know, it, it never does any harm to give central government a kick. Um, so it's 
inbuilt in, in, in devolution as well as a feature of, of nationalism to kind of encourage these grievances against uh, Westminster. Yes, and, and the idea of Starmer talking about local government taking back more control, which I thought was a, a, a clever but uh, ultimately absurd line uh, in that all it will do is create even more division within the country uh, as areas continue to blame central government for not delivering uh, what they are singularly failing to achieve themselves because they're not up to the task. Yeah, the, the, there's that element to it. And there's also that this is something this is something that in theory, so many opposition leaders have floated over the years. I mean, David Cameron was always going over this stuff about pushing powers as far down the pipe as you could get them, as it were, so that the, you got the kind of maximum degree of of devolution in, in terms of local government. And they fiddled about with bits and pieces about, you know, local people were able to... Mayors. Stop pub, yeah, the yeah. mayors, but local people stopping pubs being shut, this kind of thing, but they never really followed through on, it on, a, on a national uh, level or, or a consistent level. Partly, you know, they, they ran into financial problems and austerity and all the rest of it, but... Um, even so, it's one of these kind of grand projects that you hear talked about an awful lot whenever people are in opposition, but you very, very rarely see proper follow through in a way that would kind of make any substantial difference to people's lives. Well, as you say, uh, just like the, the current protocol uh, uh, negotiations, a lot of talk and very little substance. All right, on. Uh, let's catch up again, uh, maybe February and, and seeing how things are slowly uh, panning out, but um, I suspect this time next year we'll be sitting, uh, still talking about the protocol. Plus a change. <laughs> Plus a change. Okay, thanks, Sean. Bye now.